The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. We greet you here in the nave of Marsh Chapel at 735 Commonwealth Avenue. For those of you worshiping with us live here in the nave this morning, we welcome those listening over airwaves at 90.9 WBUR and over internet signals at WBUR.org. My name is Brother Larry Whitney. I have the privilege of serving as University Chaplain for Community Life here at Marsh Chapel, and uh, we are grateful this morning for the leadership of our ministry team and for the preaching ministry this morning of the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman of Christ Church United Methodist in New York City. We are also grateful for our musicians under the leadership this morning of Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, the fountain of all wisdom, you know our necessities before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Have compassion on our weakness and mercifully give us those things which for our unworthiness we dare not and for our blindness we cannot ask. 
through the worthiness of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Dearly beloved, as we have just confessed in our prayer, we are one unworthy and we are blind. And this morning, as our choir sings our traditional Kyrie, we confess that unworthiness and blindness that in the power of Jesus Christ, who is ultimately worthy and truly sees, we may be redeemed. Dearly beloved, if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make a God for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and all of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, and chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. Rejoice in the Lord always, Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 52 with the Antiphon. Boast, O mighty one, of mischief done against the godly. All day long you are plotting destruction. Your tongue is like a sharp razor, you worker of treachery. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking truth. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at the evildoer, saying, See the one who would not take refuge in God, but trusted in abundant riches and sought refuge in wealth. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because of what you have done. In the presence of the faithful, I will proclaim your name, for it is good. Let us stand as we are able for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke, chapter 6, 
verses 27 through 42. Glory to you, O Lord. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend from the, to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. He also told them a parable. Can a blind person guide a blind person? Will not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take this out the speck in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Again, it's a great pleasure to be with you here at Marsh Chapel. Word of thanks to Dean Hill and to Brother Larry. And I have to say that I was completely unprepared for the outstanding music. I had no idea what was here at Boston University. I was a, uh, I was a member of the first entering class of the Yale Institute of Sacred Music back in the 70s. I was a music major myself. So I come with some sense of uh, profound appreciation and I need to tell a small story that concerns my wife, who was with me last week, who pursued a career as a lyric soprano in New York, <clears throat> a story from early in my ministry, lest I think that my occupation was ever so exalted. Um, we were having a, well, let me put it this way. When I first began, I was frequently in inviting my wife, Melissa, to give me her opinion of how Sunday morning went, and by that I meant, how did I do? <clears throat> and uh, she became quite exhausted with this question Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and finally one Sunday came when, after the service, I said yet one more time, so how did I do? And Melissa let out a great big sigh, Steve, and it was deeply and heartfelt, deeply heartfelt. I don't go to church for the sermons, I go for the music. <laughs> so, I know who's who here in this place. 
thanks to all of you. You know, friends, sometimes the best laid plans have to be revamped. A month ago, I planned on sharing a story today about a young woman who I met on a plane who perfectly fit the profile of a hard-charging 30-something out to make, in her words, a very big success, leaving every other sort of life priority in the dust. She was clear about this. And I thought she was just the sort of MBA lawyer combo the community of Boston University would be proud to claim as one of their own, even one of its superlative exemplars. But that will have to wait for another day, since the hyperized aftermath following the George Zimmerman trial has captured my attention and likely yours as well. Earlier in the week, I wondered if it was really necessary to add yet one more commentary to the sizzling hot blogosphere and sermonizing, as though my take could possibly add any useful zinging insight. And though I have my faults, I don't suffer overmuch from that sort of arrogant self-regard. On the other hand, as the week wore on, culminating with the President's remarks on Friday, it seemed that not addressing these matters in this place that holds the reverberant memory of Martin Luther King Jr. would be an impossible omission. It just so happens that I am the visiting preacher to a stranger community at a time that public events overtake routine plans. And I say stranger community because my personal understanding about routinely effective preaching is that it is context-specific. In other words, I have always felt that the very best preachers are those who speak clearly and directly to the community in which they're embedded. I imagine that Dean Hill is a very effective presence in this place, in this manner that I am referencing. The loving trust granted to a competent, insightful, and prophetic preacher allows the addressing both sides of the famous quip about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. It's there in those close associations that actual change of heart and mind is possible, I think. Yes, of course, large prophetic voices like King's shake the foundations and rattle loose entrenched moralities founded upon false gods. But when all is said and done, the hard work of growing into a better version of ourselves is always local. In our own communities, in our own families, in our own friendships and associations, even within the interior of our own individual lives. Positive social change always happens incrementally as one person and then another opens their hearts and minds to new ways of thinking and acting in specific local settings and situations. So in this way, I say I am addressing a stranger community, but then again, we claim to have share a common faith, a common allegiance to a certain carpenter from Nazareth who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. That's wild, isn't it, when you stop to think about it, really? We're followers of a carpenter who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. We've never met, but we claim adherence to a common set of sacred writings, a common sense that loving God above all things and our neighbors is, as ourselves is the very ground of existence. That's what I spoke about last week when addressing the story of the Good Samaritan in a sermon entitled The Abominable Neighbor. Though I didn't address the specific case of Trayvon Martin, the serendipity of that lesson falling on that Sunday could hardly be missed. So consider this, The Abominable Neighbor, part two. As I tracked along last week, I suggested that the heart of the matter lay in understanding our own culpability in missing the obvious missing our own involvement with patterns of injustice and prejudice and our complicity. And here I will simply state that after the events of this past week, I don't believe any honestly thoughtful person could assert we are a post-racial nation in any sense, in any meaning of that phrase. 
notwithstanding recent Supreme Court pronouncements. As the President so clearly and personally articulated on Friday, no matter how one slices up the verdict of the Zimmerman case, race was up front and center before, during, and after the trial, and it looms large still. And the question for the church is, well, what shall be done? And I mean this very specifically to local settings. This focus occurred to me when reading a post by the Methodist Bishop of Florida, Ken Carter, who pointed out that prior to the events of the shooting, the town of Sanford, Florida would hardly have been fodder for national news. It's an out-of-the-way Midland location halfway between Orlando and Daytona Beach. Is it accurate to call it a kind of, you know, typical American town populated by typical types of people? Lots of them Christians, no doubt, like George Zimmerman, by the way. Surely the majority religion by a wide margin? And for argument's sake, could we say it's a stand-in for every other sort of typical neighborhood in the United States? There was a time not so long ago when the bigger cities were most often the epicenter of social disaster, discord, and protest-making national news. But over the last decades, a subtle shift has occurred as smaller towns scattered around the nation have been indelibly etched in memory. Among them, places like Sanford, Florida, Newtown, Connecticut, Columbine, Colorado. I have a very vivid memory of watching the evening news with my then 15-year-old son the day of the shootings at Columbine High School. He had grown up in New York City. After the report, Luke sat very still for a long moment. And then in a dramatic outburst exclaimed, Dad, the suburbs are so whack. And he had no idea that the rest of America at that time thought the big city was where bad stuff happened. And of course, the lesson we derive from this is that there is whackness in every community. None is exempt from the incessant pressure of large cultural forces. No one escapes, no one escapes the moral conundrums embedded within the fabric of human community. And as we all know, that fabric has great rips and tears that each generation must account for as it weaves its own few yards of life. These rips and tears invariably concern violence and abuse and injustice intricately woven into culture, society, and law. Last week I told the story of how one of these great tears came into very sharp consciousness for me. And begging your pardon for my purposes today, it bears repeating. Before this small but indelible experience, I would have told you I was pretty clear about my issues. After it, I realized I hadn't been clear at all. The scope of my awareness had been too puny. My field of vision profoundly constricted. My emotional constructs defended with impenetrable walls. About a decade, for about a decade, the church I serve, Christ Church in New York, partnered with faith communities in Ghana, West Africa, in a variety of projects. We made a point of making sure that whenever a team went over at some point in their sojourn, they would visit the slave castles on the African coast. These were the points of embarkation for the transatlantic slave trade where millions were bound and held prisoner, crammed into dank cells. I have a vivid and profound memory of standing in the chapel of one of the castles for the very first time. A cold chill swept through me when I realized the floor of the chapel doubled as the ceiling for the men's slave dungeon. I assumed then the lessons about loving God and neighbor were spoken of in that space. 
I tell you, wheel tears welled up in my eyes. And there is a sense in which they have never ended. I felt the reality of Christian ignorance, betrayal physically, physically in every cell of my being right there. And I returned home different from that trip. Usefully, my local community made this all possible and we shared it together. The experience remains one of the more powerful metaphors of my ministry. I do not think the church is anywhere near finished learning the lesson this disturbing metaphor teaches quite yet. Do you? It was in part to restore the fabric of our common good Jesus ushered in what he referred to as the kingdom of God. You heard one of this kingdom's most searing disciplines earlier, to love one's enemy. Really, Jesus? <laughs> you really mean that, honestly? But then short of loving an enemy, there's a whole roster of people we're meant to love in the meantime, even the abominable neighbor, whoever that may be. Coming to terms with what is in fact true about our circumstance is an incredibly difficult process. What is true about our circumstance and what is true about ourselves. We need each other for this. We cannot do this work alone. I cannot see my own prejudices, for instance, on my own. I am much too resistant and culpable and self-righteous. But as I describe myself, I do believe I'm describing the general condition from which no one is exempt. And for our purposes today, again, the challenge is this. What is the church doing about it? And I don't mean the big church out there somewhere making pronouncements. I mean in every local community, in every environment, everyone in the range of my voice today. Is this problem of identifying our culpability being addressed locally? Are new and challenging methods pressing people to extend themselves in ways they haven't tried? as the president suggested, asking ourselves, am I wringing as much bias out of myself as I can? Am I judging people as much as I can based on not the color of their skin, but the content of their character? Beyond the feel-good theatrics of prosperity gospels and self-help motivational sermons masquerading as deep spirituality, is the church and local settings about the business of helping people identify their enemies and then loving them? That's a much, much harder and far, far more important work. And I say that that work takes us directly to the heart of grace and faith as modeled by Jesus. As you may be aware, there was a serendipity this week considering our focus. The 95th birthday of Nelson Mandela, imprisoned for 27 years. 27 years, that is a very long time. By way of perspective, that's 10 years longer than Trayvon Martin had life. Mandela emerged from his captivity like a man who had been incubating the better angels of his nature the whole while. Instead of being filled with a more normally expected spirit of vengeance and violence, he came into his better self, one that had a deep instinct for hopeful embodied reconciliation. You remember how Bishop Desmond Tutu reported Mandela's inauguration day? 
He wrote this, a poignant moment came when Mandela arrived and the various heads of the security forces, the police and the correctional services strode to his car, saluted him and then escorted him as the head of state. It was poignant because only a few years previously he had been their prisoner and would have been considered a terrorist to have been hunted down. What a metamorphosis, what an extraordinary turnaround. He invited his white jailer to attend his inauguration as an honored guest, the first of many gestures he would make in his spectacular way, showing his breathtaking magnanimity and willingness to forgive. Mandela modeled something tremendously important for his nation and for all anywhere, I say, who were willing to consider that a different way in the world was actually possible. He emerged from prison as a new man, as someone who had been gestating in the cocoon of a cell and strode out without any inner or outer shackles at all. He had been made free prior to his physical release. As heard earlier, the Apostle Paul was another prisoner made free by the most excellent way. From his prison cell, he encouraged his friends to pattern themselves in this different way, to strain forward to what lies ahead, committed to whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent. Friends, imagine if every church in the land actually had this as their clarion call in their local communities and with the same joyful exuberance as Paul modeled this gracious way in the world. I don't have to tell you how it runs counter to prevailing norms. Even within the life of some churches that seem deaf to so much of the gospel for which Jesus offered his life. How does your church embody this fantastic life-giving agenda? How are you supported and encouraged to wake up your brain and your heart and to welcome God's astonishing, graceful spirit? It's right there. Can you see it and feel it and sense it? The opportunity, the potential, I'm thinking, friends, that as it turns out, we're not strangers at all. Each one of us touched, opened up, changed, made new by an amazing grace that sets before us the only agenda with the power to change the world.
Dear friends, as we turn our hearts and minds to prayer, I would invite you to remain standing or be seated or kneel or come to the communion rail according to your tradition as we join in our call to prayer. Lead me, Lord. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and eternal, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us today as we pray for justice. We know that justice does not always prevail in our broken and fractured human lives. We know that justice does not always rely on what is what could totally be known, but rather on what can be proved. We know that our systems of justice are never entirely blind. And we pray, O oh God, for that day when your justice prevails, a justice based on ultimate wisdom, ultimate mercy, and ultimate love. Holy God, we pray for your mercy today as we pray for love. We pray that we may be as Christ to those we meet and that we may find Christ within them, that in so doing we may have ever greater compassion, a greater suffering with, a greater accompaniment in the depths of the despair and of the joy of human existence. For it is out of love that flows your justice. And God, have mercy on us today as we pray for peace. We pray for peace in our world that no one should have to fear for their lives while walking down the streets of their community. We pray for peace as we pray that no child should ever enter a classroom here in the United States or far abroad fearing that it will be shot up and their lives stolen from them. And holy God, we pray for peace in our hearts, that we may strive for the will to live lives of peace and love and justice. We pray all of these things in the power of your spirit as we pray in the words that Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and hope you will take a moment to participate in our ritual of friendship by putting your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew and passing that book along to your neighbor so that we may get to know them as well so that we can help to get you we, so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We look forward next Sunday to welcoming the Reverend Stephen Cady. We have a slew of Stevens this summer. Uh, the Reverend Stephen Cady from Asbury First United Methodist Church in Rochester, our uh, next member of our Summer Preacher series. As the ushers wait upon us for the morning offering, we invite you to meditate on St. Augustine's words, set by Heinrich Schutz, Space Mea, my hope. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
Gracious God, we humbly give thanks for these gifts of generosity and sacrifice. May we always remember the joy in giving and the hope it inspires. With thanks we pray. Amen. Good friends, go to serve God and your neighbor in all that you do and bear witness to the love of God in the world so that those to whom love is a stranger will find in you a very generous friend. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you today and always. Amen.